Well, I tell you what, I've been looking forward to this day for months and months now, and I am so happy that it's here. Uh, It is an honor and privilege for me to stand here with you and meditate on God's Word with you over the next three months while Pastor John is gone. We're in for an exciting ride. Uh, We're going to get a little bit of help from some Apollos grads and an elder or two maybe along the way. We're going to continue this series from time to time after John comes back as well. When Pastor John gets back, of course, he'll continue his series in 2 Corinthians. But in the meantime, here we are, and we're at the very beginning. We're going to start at the beginning today uh, with Psalm number 1. If you want to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 1. This is a psalm that many of us might be very familiar with, especially the first verse or so. Uh, But uh, you know how we have this tendency to pick out particular passages and leave out the rest. And so today we're going to look at the whole psalm together and see what it has to say. So we're going to read it right off the top here. So this is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, we are about to spend the next three months immersing ourselves in a two to three thousand year old book half of which was written by a murderous adulterer. And not only that, its language can seem archaic and its subject matter seems obsolete to our generation with all this talk about kings and warriors and a God who punishes sin. What in the world could this book that was written so long ago in a different time and a place, what in the world could it have to do with us? Because we live in a world that likes to think that we're improving morally, that we can evolve into a better species of human if we change the right laws and improve circumstances, and we'll do all that by relying on our human ingenuity. And so the idea is that if more and more of us are for the right things, this is how the logic goes, if more and more of us are for the right things, then we can become a positive force in the social and moral evolution of the human species. It's kind of easy for us to adopt that mentality. I mean, after all, I want the world to be a better place, don't you? Of course we do, if not for ourselves and for our children. Seems like if we try hard enough, we can overcome the bad angels of our nature, the way Abraham Lincoln put it. But you know what? The Bible is at odds with that point of view. The Bible asserts that our sin has broken our relationship with God. 
This is a horrible condition that is the reality for every single generation. Human ingenuity and our laws cannot fix that. Even, even the morally correct answers to all the cultural, political, and social issues that are so important to us as Christians can't fix that. The only thing that can fix that is the God who saves. The only thing that can fix that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. And so this is why the Psalms are as relevant today as they've ever been. Yes, they were written by a murderous adulterer who knew he needed God's grace. And you know what? So do we. We're in the same boat. He and the authors of the Psalms wrote these songs about their complaints toward God. They wrote about their own sin and how the Lord always deals with them mercifully. And so these are the songs and the prayers that we need to remind us that God will deal with us in the same merciful way if, if we delight in him. So in the very first psalm, God confronts us with the contrast between a righteous man and a wicked man. This is a vivid portrait that challenges us as if God is asking, do you you delight in me and my law or not? Do you or don't you? And so how you answer this question depends on whether you're righteous or wicked. That is, on whether or not you're right with God. This is not a question of morality alone. This question has to do with whether you believe God has the right to determine what is righteous and that he has the right to judge whether you are righteous. You see, the question is about God himself and your eternal relationship with him. This is a matter of life and death. And that's exactly why the Psalms are so relevant even now. And so today we begin our series called Infinite Glory, Intimate Grace. For those of us who delight in God and His law, we turn to this beautiful, ancient, Holy Holy Spirit-inspired hymn book of God's people to find hope and encouragement, strength and commiseration in the midst of the joys and despairs of life, even right here in the 21st century. Dr. Steve Lawson is one of the great preachers of of our time, and he says in one of his books about the Psalms, this divinely inspired hymnal of the ancient temple of Israel ignites human hearts with a holy passion for God. It connects people with God at the deepest level. This towering book gives a majestic revelation of the awesome, holy character of God. Throughout the Psalter, God is vividly displayed as sovereignly ruling over, yet being being intimately involved in the lives of his people. Here they are led to behold and adore his infinite glory. Now you know where we got the title for this series, Infinite Glory and Intimate Grace. The Psalms are about the infinite glory of God. They are about his intimate grace toward us. And through them we do connect to God at the deepest level, but only if we delight in his word. Those of us who do delight in God's word already know the impact of the Psalms because we do turn to them so often in our times of joy and despair. You know, I've done that myself over the last couple of years as I've faced a couple of illnesses, totally unexpected illnesses. 
And Psalm 50, verse 15 has had a great impact on me as I've stared up at the ceiling of a hospital room wondering what in the world's going to happen to me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What an awesome promise. I'm sure most of us in this room have at least one favorite verse or passage from the Psalms. And you know what? If you don't already, by the end of this series, I hope that you will. But our attention today is on the first psalm. And so as we take a look at it, we also want to learn some things about the book of Psalms as a whole to kind of set us up to understand what it is that we're reading when we read a psalm. And so if you look at Psalm 1 in your, in your Bibles, you're going to notice a heading above it that says, Book 1. What's that about? Well, there are actually five books in the Psalms because these are songs that were collected during five different eras in the history of God's people. Psalm 1 is the beginning of the first book. And so if you take a look at your chart in the handout, you can see uh, the different eras when the Psalms were collected, beginning with King David all the way through Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is a collection of songs. We get the term psalm from the Greek word psalmos, which just simply means a song or a chant accompanied by a stringed instrument. In the Hebrew, they came to be known as the tehillim, or the book of praises. And now the psalms were actually written by several authors. We tend to think that they were all written by David. Well, they weren't. Uh, King David wrote at least half of the psalms, And we know the authorship of of those psalms because many of the psalms have another heading in all capital letters. And this is an ancient heading that was placed there by the people who first compiled these psalms. And so if you just turn over to Psalm 3, you're going to see one of those headings in all capital letters. In some Bibles, it's right by the number 3 or right under, you know, the the chapter uh, heading there. And in this case, it says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Headings like this tell us who wrote the psalm. And sometimes there's some musical notation of some kind. And as in this case, sometimes uh, it describes the circumstances that inspired the writing of the psalm. Now, in terms of authorship, in addition to David... Uh, Asaph, who was one of David's choir masters at the temple, he wrote 12 of the Psalms. The Sons of Korah, uh, this was a group of Levitical musicians and songwriters, they wrote 10 of the Psalms. Solomon wrote two, and then Moses, Ethan, and Haman each wrote one Psalm. But for almost a third of the Psalms, we don't know who wrote them, for sure. 48 of the Psalms are anonymous. And this is exactly the case with Psalms 1 and 2, which introduced the whole book of the Psalms. You notice that Psalms 1 and 2 don't have a heading. And so we don't know who wrote those. Well, that's not the only thing we don't know. We also don't know uh, what the music or the melody sounded like. You can only guess what a psalm like 119 must have sounded like. How is that structured musically? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. There's 22 stanzas, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I guarantee you it would take the better part of your lunch hour just to read that one psalm. It's a very, very long psalm. Who sang these songs? Well, the temple choirs sang these songs during worship at the temple. 
The people also sang during various festivals throughout the year to commemorate the work of God, and I, and I figure that probably some of the shepherds out in the fields would hum through them as they're watching the flock. So that's, that's kind of the cultural setting for Psalm 1, and in fact, all of the psalms. They're, they're worship songs, in essence. But there's also a broader context for Psalm 1 and for all of the psalms, for each book of the psalms. Each of the five books also seems to have an intentional thematic structure that scholars are just now beginning to realize as never before. For instance... Some view the first five books of the Psalms as corresponding to the themes of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. Each of these books has a similar emphasis to its cousin. Scholars also see an intentional thematic and theological structure that flows from one book of the Psalms to the next. You can see two examples on your chart, one from Dr. Lawson, the other from Dr. Paul House, who is one of the the Old Testament scholars who worked on the ESV translation. But all of these various credible sources describe and portray the same basic themes of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms were written and collected during the era of of First uh, Samuel, all the way through Nehemiah. This is the, the roller coaster history of God's people. From the rise of David as God's anointed king to the disintegration and downfall of Israel and Judah because of their sin. Goes on to their exile in Babylon and finally to the joyful return of the faithful remnant after the exile. And the overtone throughout all of the Psalms, there's an overtone here, is about a coming Messiah, a king who is someday going to save his people. He's going to restore them and restore their relationship to God. So all to say, there's a whole lot going on here. And I promise you, there's not going to be a pop quiz at the end of the service. The point here is that there's rhyme and reason to these songs that so many of us have turned to in our days of trouble and rejoicing. There's a broader context here. And as we dig in to understand that context, we're going to be blessed with a deeper appreciation for God's infinite glory and His intimate grace and, of course, a deeper relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are. We're at the very beginning of book one, and we're ready to receive what God has to say to us in Psalm 1. The first two psalms set the tone for this towering book. The compilers of the psalms intentionally put these two psalms at the beginning of the book to introduce all of its themes. We don't know who wrote either one of them or exactly when they were written. But in Psalm 1, we see a stark contrast between two men. One is righteous, and the other is wicked. And we see a contrast between the paths that they follow and the destination of each, according to God. And so the big idea, or premise, John likes to call it a premise or a proposition. I like to call it the big idea. Okay, So the big idea is twofold. The way that's based on God's word leads to salvation and life, but the way without God leads to judgment and death. 
In verses 1 through 3, we see the first part of the contrast. We see that the righteous way is based on God's Word and results in a fruitful and prosperous life. Verses 4 and 5, we see the second part of the contrast, the wicked way. The wicked way is based on a rejection of God and produces nothing of value in God's eyes. And then in verse 6, we see the contrasting consequences of those two paths. The way of the righteous leads to salvation and life, but the way of the wicked leads to death. And so if you would read Psalm 1 in ancient Hebrew, which is the original language of of all of these songs, the first thing that you would notice is that Hebrew poetry depends primarily on a literary device called parallelism. Parallelism. It depends on this instead of the meter and the rhyme that we're used to. You know, how all of our songs have to rhyme and they've got to be a certain meter. Hebrew poetry doesn't depend on that. Parallelism introduces an idea and then expands on that idea with similar or opposing statements about the same thing. This is the pattern of Hebrew poetry and it's the key to understanding it. So let's, let's go ahead and take a look at the first part of our contrast between a righteous man and a wicked one, and we'll get our first taste of parallelism. And so remember, our first point is that the righteous way is based on God's word and results in a fruitful and prosperous life. And as we read this, listen how wickedness is contrasted with a state of blessedness, and how wickedness is restated in three similar ways, and blessedness is restated in two similar ways. This is parallelism. And so here we go, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Three parallel statements. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Two more parallel statements. And so we learn that the righteous man takes no part in wickedness. This is stated in three parallel ways. He does not walk, stand, or sit with the ungodly. And so in verse 1, we learn what the righteous man does not do. In verse 2, that's contrasted with what a righteous man does do. He delights in God's law, and he meditates on it day and night. Do you see how these parallel statements uh, really do expand on each other? They build on each other. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to people who oppose God. But not only that, he, the, the righteous man rejects w- uh, wickedness in principle. But not only that, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. That is, his lifestyle and behavior reflect his rejection of wickedness and his devotion to holiness. And that's because he's not a man of mere words. He's a man of true conviction. Lastly, because the righteous man rejects ungodliness both in principle and in action, he also doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man is never to be found mocking God or the things of God. And then we find that the way of the righteous is to the extreme, since he not only delights in God's law, but he meditates on it day and night. The sense here is that he's not just studying God's word like you would a textbook. He's taking it to heart so he doesn't get caught up in ungodly influences. 
The the Word has real power to do that, to change us. And so the righteous person lives the Word of God. And so a blessed person delights in God's Word, while the clear implication is that a wicked person doesn't. And by the way, a wicked person, they, they don't always have to be axe murderers or cruel dictators of despot nations. A wicked person can be can be your kind neighbor who just seems like such a good person. A wicked person could be a first-grade teacher. could be somebody sitting in the pew with you this morning. A wicked person can even be you. And the reason for that is that what wicked people have in common is their rejection of God. Instead of delighting in God and His law, they, they reject Him. They push him away. They despise God. And so all that begs the question, which man are you like? Are you like the blessed man who approaches God's word with delight? Do you hang on every word God says? Does God's law give you pleasure to read because it's the truth? Do you enjoy meditating on the God of the Bible? You see, a righteous person doesn't approach God's word by pitting one scripture against the other, looking for loopholes and inconsistencies like some people do. He doesn't approach God's word with a scowl like some people, ready to resist what it might tell them, casting doubt on its power and truth. And he doesn't approach God's word with a pair of scissors like some people, ready to cut out all the parts he doesn't like. Now, of course, all this doesn't mean that God's Word should not challenge us or even perplex the living daylights out of us. Of course it should, because it is just as the letter to the Hebrews describes. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, this famous passage, but listen to the whole thing. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everybody on this planet needs to give an account to the Almighty God. And for those of us who delight in God's word, yes, God's word can convict us. It can even be painful as it pierces our hearts with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Most of us know how that feels, this horrible moment when we realize the way we've been behaving and living is contrary to the word of God. You know, years ago, I I enjoyed all the kind of off-color jokes that had to do with innuendo. And where I worked then, everybody did. I even threw in some zingers of my own. But then I felt the stab of Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There's no place in the Christian's life for that kind of stuff. We should be about thanksgiving to God. And so I'm so glad that I felt the sword of the Spirit pierce my heart because that's when I traded in the junk of wickedness for the joy of obedience and holiness. And that's when I started to to delight in God's word instead of the laughs. And then I began 
to live God's word in a way that I hadn't done before. And you know, that's the culmination of delight. Delight means that we live for God. Delight means that we're far more than fans of God. You know, I'm a Washington Nationals fan. Today, I'm even a fan of the Cleveland Indians because later on this evening, they're playing the Yankees. But mostly, I root for the Nationals. I can say that even though I only know a few of the players' names. I've only watched part of a couple of games this year. But I'm happy they're doing well. I'm a fan. I think I might, I know I have a hat at home, a Washington Nationals hat. I might have a t-shirt somewhere. I'm not sure. But you know, God doesn't want me to root for him. He wants me to live for him. He wants his word to change me, not just so my morals will be good, but so that I love him and glorify him. He wants me to affirm by the way that I live that his word is the source of my life. That's the righteous way. And that's exactly the kind of man that verse 3 shows us. The result of the righteous man's delight in God's word is that he lives a fruitful and useful life for God. Verse 3 says, He, the blessed man or the righteous man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. So if you delight in God's word, it means God has planted you where your roots are drawing from the life-giving nourishment of the Bible. And because you're constantly being filled with God's truth, it only follows that you produce fruit. And of course, that fruit is righteousness. You don't just wear the t-shirt. You don't just cheer God from the stands, but you live in a way that proves your faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to you. And so when we walk not according to the counsel of the wicked, but according to God, we become like the tree in verse 3 that produces fruit. Just like the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want nothing to do with wickedness. We're driven instead by our love for God's Word. And because we delight in God's Word, the fruit that we bear is righteousness. But you know, sometimes the world hates us for it, doesn't it? Doesn't like it when we delight in God's word. I know a social worker who once worked in a nursing home. Her, her boss ordered her to fudge records so that Medicare or one of those government sources of money would just pay the nursing home a lot more money. In essence, she was being told to lie so that the nursing home would make more money. She eventually got fired because she wouldn't do it. It was hard to refuse the wicked counsel of her boss, but she did because she delighted in God's law more than she feared her boss. You know, there's a worldly cost sometimes to living in a way that produces godly fruit according to our delight in God's law, but it is worth it every single time. Somebody say amen. That's what a righteous person is like. He's able to live for God because because he's planted in God's truth. But how about the wicked? How do the wicked compare to the righteous? Well, here's where we begin to see the second part of our contrast. The wicked way is based on a rejection of God and produces nothing of value in God's eyes. In verses 4 and 5, the wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Quick little history lesson in Bible times. When wheat was harvested in Bible times, workers would gather in an area called the threshing floor. And what they were doing was separating the useful edible parts of the wheat from the stuff that you can't eat, the crunchy, inedible parts of the, of the plant. That useless stuff is called chaff. And so using a winnowing fork, something like a pitchfork, they would toss the wheat into the air and they would let the, the wind blow away the chaff, the uneatable parts. But the heavier grains of wheat would just fall down at their feet And they would gather that up, of course, to begin the process of making bread. And so you see the contrast is becoming clearer between the righteous way and the wicked way, the righteous person and the wicked person. The righteous person produces fruit because he's healthy from the nourishment of God's word. He's like the grain of wheat. He's useful. But the wicked are not so. To God, they are as useless as chaff is to the human palate. An ungodly person might even do good things, like work to eradicate poverty, to improve circumstances for the poor. But look at what Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, of course, this is not to say that helping the poor isn't a good thing. Scripture even commands that we do that. But God wants us to do it for the right reason. And there's one reason to do it, one primary reason that is above all the other reasons. Proverbs 14, verse 31 tells us, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And so the reason that we should work to reduce poverty or do any other good thing is because it honors our maker. But an ungodly person is not interested in honoring God. They're interested only in being good independently of God. An ungodly person is not interested in the poor knowing that every blessing comes from God. The ungodly person wants the poor to think that blessing comes from good people. The point is is that good things accomplished for ungodly reasons have no eternal value in God's eyes. Have you ever worked all day long and realized at the end of the day that it was for nothing? I can speak from experience from this. This is really, really disheartening. But imagine living your whole life for nothing. This is what Psalm 1 is saying about an ungodly person. He lives for nothing. He's like chaff. He labors in vain. And his work is ultimately useless and worthless to God. It means that God is right to judge him. God is right not to allow him to be a member of his congregation. The ungodly person has no future with God. And at the end of their road is no salvation but judgment. And so we can see that the outcomes for a righteous person and a wicked person could not be any more different. And here's where we see this contrast in verse 6, the contrasting consequences 
The way of the righteous leads to salvation and life, but the way of the wicked leads to death. Verse 6 says, for the, way, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now there's a, another way to translate the Hebrew word for know here, and that is that God protects the way of the righteous. Of course, what is he protecting us from? He's protecting us from his judgment, which we're going to see next week is going to be harsh. The idea is also that the natural consequence of a righteous life is that God watches over us. Not only in terms of of judgment and salvation, but also in terms of this life. Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. And so because we're living in God's way, in harmony with his law, he protects us. He hears the cries of our hearts. And this is the sense of Jesus' words in John 10, 14. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And so that's why when we can hear our master's voice in a psalm, right? It's why we can sense his comfort when we're in a hospital room. It's it's why we can boldly refuse to be dishonest, even if it means losing our job. We know Christ, and he knows us, and he watches over us. And because we hear his voice, we do as he says. You see, a, a shepherd knows every sheep in his flock to protect every one of them. If he didn't know how many he had or or what their habits were, he wouldn't be able to keep them from danger. He wouldn't be able to keep them safe. But the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, knows and protects the righteous. And in turn, the righteous person knows the shepherd in the sense that we do what he says because we trust him to protect us. And we trust him to care for us. But you know, we've been talking about the righteous all morning here. What is a righteous person anyway? What does this mean? Is it even possible to be righteous? I mean, after all, Romans 3.10 quotes Psalm 14 and says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then it goes on in verse 23 of Romans 3 to point out that all have sinned. How can we be righteous? Well, verse 22 of Romans 3 clears all of it up for us. Verse 22 tells us that we depend on the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We depend on the righteousness of Christ for salvation. But while, even while we depend entirely on the righteousness of Christ for salvation, God does command us to live righteously, to live according to his law, an ability that we can have only by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. If we are right with God through Christ, we're going to joyfully strive to live rightly. And that means that God himself must be our benchmark. And in the language of Psalm 1, that we delight in the holy standard that God spells out in his law, even though we're not perfect. That was today's catechism, wasn't it? You know, you're going to do some unrighteous things. David did. But just like David, 
You seek God's forgiveness and a restoration of your relationship with God. You repent because you ultimately cherish and delight in every word God has spoken. That's what a righteous person looks like. God knows and protects the righteous who live in harmony with Him. The righteous will be safe forever. But the wicked, the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. This is the natural consequence of living in opposition to God. God knows His sheep, but the other sheep are lost. They're seeking their own way, and they are bound for destruction. Somebody who puts their hope in human laws and circumstances, who believes that they can be better without God, is not interested in the protection of the Good Shepherd. He's not interested in it. And a person like that will die because he's unprotected. He's outside the flock and he's unprotected. They will not stand in the judgment of God. They will perish because ungodly people, ungodly people are worthless to God. They will perish because God will destroy evil. We're going to see that next week in Psalm 2. Their lives and all that they've done are going to flutter uselessly away like chaff because they have no lasting value at all. They're going to get to the end of their lives only to find out that they've lived for nothing unless by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit They learn to delight in God and His Word and receive His grace. And therein lies the importance of our testimony about the great God that we have so that they can know that. And you know, we take home with us today this message of Psalm 1 that one path leads to God's protection, namely in Christ, the Good Shepherd. And that way is based on God's Word And it leads to a fruitful life in the Lord, but the godless way leads to judgment and death, and it produces nothing of value in God's eyes. And so, my friends, it is abundantly clear that we are faced with a matter of life and death. This is an issue that is as relevant today as it ever was. And this is the issue that Christ was talking about in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, the passage that Elder Scotty James read a few minutes ago. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The wicked of this world are counseling you to take the wide and easy way by depending on your own goodness and by despising and rejecting the word of God. This is exactly why Paul urges us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Righteousness has to do with being transformed by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit through faith in the Good Shepherd. Righteousness is about being changed by the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, to live in a way that glorifies God even when it's hard to do. 
And so are you, are you trying to be good without God? Well, God is urgently warning you in Psalm 1 that that is not possible. Not only that, God says that refusing him leads to judgment and death. Psalm 1 is warning you that God does have the right to decide what righteousness is, and also he has the right to judge you. It's also warning you that if you insist on rejecting him, he will reject you like chaff. But along with that warning is a very clear and beautiful hope that you can be transformed to and that your life can mean something to God now and forever. You can have an intimate relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who knows his sheep. And let me tell you, he is so good that he laid down his life to restore your broken relationship with God when he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if you put your trust in him today, if you'll receive that beautiful, intimate grace, you'll become a changed person. You'll be a new person, a restored person, a righteous person in the eyes of God. You'll be somebody who delights in God's word and who lives because of the infinite glory of the only one who is truly, truly good. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible beginning to the Psalms that shows us the stark contrast between following you and rejecting you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use this lesson in our hearts and our minds to use it in a way to cause us to delight in you and your word and then to live for you, to glorify your name, to make your name famous in all of the earth so that all can know that you are the great and mighty and gracious, merciful God. Amen and amen. Well, I don't think there is any more fitting psalm uh, to begin on on a communion Sunday as we're faced with this question between the righteous way and the wicked way. And this incredible lesson that the righteous way does lead to salvation and life. This is a way that depends on God's word and, of course, one that proclaims the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what communion is all about. And so we would ask that if you, uh, if you have not received Christ as your Lord, that you would just refrain from taking communion today. It's not going to do you any good anyway. Uh, but you know what? Maybe you've been struck by something today as you've never heard before. And uh, you are welcome at his table if you're putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we'll do is we'll pass out the bread and then we'll take it together. I'll let you take care of the napkin there. And uh, we'll take that together, and then we'll pass out the juice and do 